This is Esculapius, a podcast that uncovers the human side of our healthcare professionals. I'm your host, John Neary. Today, my guest is Dr. Ethan Tarasov. Dr. Tarasov received his MD from the University of Rochester School of Medicine and Dentistry before doing his residency in radiology at Weill Medical College of Cornell University. He worked for nearly 30 years as a radiologist for Radiology Affiliates Imaging, serving populations in New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and Delaware. After retiring from medicine, he has spent most of his time as a songwriter and composer. Dr. Tarasov has also started his own publishing company called Sounding Sea Music that distributes his work to a wider audience. Ethan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. So I just wanted to start out actually at the crossroads of music uh, and medicine and asking you uh, with your your experience in both of those realms, can you reflect on um, the healing power of both music and medicine? The larger question, um, how how and why music is healing for people, um, it, I, it's, it's hard to know. I, I think that there, there is some underlying neurologic substrate, something about our brains that uh, is uh, responsible for the fact that universal is, you know, almost, uh, excuse me, music is almost a universal human experience or attribute, develops in, I think, pretty much all, all cultures. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm not an anthropologist. Uh, Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, late author, uh, wrote a book called Musicophilia that uh, I've read uh, segments from. And uh, he, he, he ponders uh, about the role of music uh, and, and, and brain function as, uh, through his lens as a clinical neurologist. Uh, some very interesting case studies. Uh, Somebody's uh, who's not really not particularly musical, I think gets hit by lightning on a golf course, has to be, you know, resuscitated. And when he comes around, he's seized by a passion for music uh, that changes his his life. Uh, stories like that. But uh, well, they're they're anecdotes. It's uh, so I don't I don't have a lot more to say, I guess, about that. So looking at your, your 30 years in the field uh, of medicine as a clinician, um, first off, how has medicine evolved uh, over that time period and uh, what you've seen? Well, there were uh, great, great changes uh, really over more than a 30-year period. So, you know, I, I entered medical school in 1977. I retired in 2016. Um, when I was in medical school, uh, CAT scans were, were a pretty new thing. Uh, they, and, um, looking back at the kind of images that a CAT scanner generated in say 1979, they were incredibly primitive compared to what, what we just take for granted now. But CAT scans came along in the early 1970s and they really, the CAT scan technology had a really transformative effect on medicine, um, really stunning. Um, 
before CAT scanning, we, you know, obviously we had some X-ray technologies, but the amount of information that they revealed was really very limited in terms of a lot of different conditions. Uh, CAT scanning put imaging like on treble steroids. Uh, and so that what, what happened over a period of time is people really stopped talking even about exploratory laparotomies. I mean, uh, when I started medical school, you wanted to find out what was going on inside somebody. Uh, there was a good chance you're going to have to open up and take a look. Uh, CAT scanning, you know, was a big piece of the reason that that no longer pertained. Uh, now, most of the time, surgeon uh, operates on someone they, they know in advance to a large extent, what they're going to confront, not, not a hundred percent, but so it really changed things in terms of ability to diagnose, uh, all the percutaneous techniques that we developed, whether it's percutaneous biopsy, interventional procedures, that all really occurred pretty much over the course of my career. Uh, when I graduated medical school, there was no MRI, uh, yet. Um, I, I remember as a, when I was a, interviewing for my uh, residency internship, the, the chairman of the radiology department showed me the architecture layout plans for the first MRI suite that they were planning uh, at Cornell. And I think that was the first one in New York City. It wasn't built until I think 1982. Um, so an MRI, of course, just opened up whole new possibilities of, of, of diagnosis, um, not just in the abdomen and in the in central nervous system, the brain and spine, but for the first time really allowed us to see what was going on within joints, non-invasively or, you know, relatively non-invasively um, in, in exquisite detail. So um, the, these were huge revolutionary advances, CT and MRI. The inventors of both technologies in each won the Nobel Prize, and I think very, very deservedly so. So um, those were huge changes in imaging, and it really put imaging front and center as just an absolutely vital piece of, of patient diagnosis so that uh, well into my career, I, you know, it was pretty apparent that if a patient came to an emergency room, the, the goal was basically to get them stable so you could image them and figure out what was going on. Uh, um, and um, that, that was completely new compared to when I was in, originally in school. I, I've definitely noticed in my own work um, in imaging that all roads kind of go through that, right? And uh, it's it's kind of the toll booth for for all avenues of medicine, which I think is really cool. Um, in terms of your work as a cl cl clinician, though, you were a part of uh, diagnostic radiology as well as interventional radiology. And could you just talk about like wearing those two hats and the different uh, responsibilities you had? Uh, when performing uh, in, in both those disciplines? Well, uh, for the first half of my career, I, I did both interventional and uh, diagnostic radiology. So I had my subspecialty certification in interventional radiology. Um, 
which in and of itself was new. Uh, when It didn't exist even at, when I was a resident. The first subspecialty certificates for interventional, I think, occurred a little bit later. Um, and uh, it, it was, you know, very, we had within the group a d division of labor um, because if you're in a procedure room doing an putting in a nephrostomy or doing an angiogram, which was much more common in those days than it is now because we have CT and MR angiography, um, you, you can't be reading x-rays at the same time on another patient. So um, there, there, there was a division of labor, but it was um, doing both diagnostic and interventional um, you certainly couldn't rest on your laurels. I mean, I remember one time I was doing a, a renal artery angioplasty on a patient, which is a technically demanding procedure and um, where you're trying to use a balloon or balloon in a stent to open up a renal artery in the hopes of either improving kidney function or help, helping treat uh, a patient's hypertension. Not something done very much anymore, but 25 years ago, it was done pr pretty routinely. Um, so I, I had this arduous procedure. I was in the procedure room for, you know, probably two and a half hours getting a complex renal angioplasty done. Uh, and I, I, I walked out of the procedure room, took off my, taking off my, my, my uh, uh, gown and getting the, uh, the, the heavy lead apron off and a tech, you know, runs up to me and shows me She's got a patient, you know, who's uh, 32 weeks pregnant. She's getting an ultrasound. She's bleeding. Could you look at the images? You know, you didn't even have time to, like, take a breath. <laughs> Come in, you know, leaving the interventional, uh, you know, pan in the, into the obstetric ultrasound, uh, you know, fryer. So, um, but it was exciting to be involved with both. And it wasn't, and it was helpful it was helpful because you you need the very sharp diagnostic skills you got to, to to do the best interventional work um because a lot of the planning in the interventional work is a function of your interpretation of imaging so that you can plan what you're going to do so i i always enjoyed doing both uh finally um i decided that i was going to put down my uh interventional uh, hat and just do the diagnostic um, but um, I enjoyed it for the 15 years or so that I was doing both I wanted to ask also about so you worked with um, an organization called radiology affiliates imaging which is uh, correct me if I'm wrong just an, uh, a group of about 50 or so radiologists who uh, together provide imaging services for both individuals, but also healthcare centers. Is that right? Yes, uh, we have, uh, well, it's an ongoing organization, but I, as I said, I retired four years ago, but we, we served uh, a number of hospitals and plus uh, our own offices, uh, imaging offices. And we were in some collaborative arrangements at uh, 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 other imaging offices. So can you talk about perhaps the difference in environment of, of saying working for like a professional association where you have your own independent imaging offices as opposed to just being, say, a radiologist at a hospital, kind of just not in this collaborative uh, 
professional space? Well, there are a lot of, I was primarily hospital-based. I would say over the course of my career, I probably spent 80% of my time, 90% of my time uh, hospital, working in hospitals. So it, it was a pri it's a private medical practice uh, that was single specialty radiology uh, that, and we would contract with various hospitals to provide round the clock diagnostic and interventional radiology services to that hospital. So some of the radiologists uh, would be, uh, you know, assigned and, and would be primarily at that hospital. That was something that the hospitals wanted. They want to have a core of people that are there all the time providing those services, um, which is, you know, ideal for quality, utilize, quality control, utilization control, so that the clinical staff comes to know and feel they can trust and rely on the, the radiologists that are providing services at that hospital. Um, I, at the same time, we were providing a lot of outpatient services, both at hospital and in offices. Um, the thing about having your own offices, it's like anything else. I mean, there's advantages to having your own business because you can control it. You can do it. You can provide the service the way you think is going to is going to work and is going to be best. Um, it's a very different environment in an, you know, an outpatient office that you're dealing with a, a patient population that by and large is not as ill and certainly not as acutely ill as what you have in a hospital. Um, so, the, you know, very, very different experiences. Uh, I was mostly at the hospitals, um, but some at the office, a little bit at the offices. I guess I'll, I'll segue into your music career here, but at what point did you kind of decide to hang up the, the stethoscope and uh, do music full time? Was it something that you kind of did on the side during your medical career and felt like you didn't have enough time for? Or what was the, the whole thought process there? Well, I, I made a decision that, you know, I wanted to retire by a certain point because I really... Uh, I, I wanted to have the opportunity to do other things. I'm, uh, I'm interested in an awful lot of areas um, uh, and activities and uh, the, especially the last 10, 15 years of my career, I was very much all in uh, to the career. So it left very little time for me to pursue anything else. Uh, and that partly uh, that was, because, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard work just staying abreast of your own field. It it's changes very fast. There's new technologies, new, new information, and you feel like you want to try and, you know, keep up with all that. You need to. Uh, but also um, what happens is you go through your career, uh, and it, whether you tend to be given more responsibility and you take on more responsibility. So I was the chairman of the radiology department at the small hospital where I was working. So that means, you know, you're on a lot of committees. You're on the hospital safety committee, the executive committee. I was chairman of the credentials committee, which is a very important function. That's the committee that has to, when, when someone applies to be a doctor at a hospital, uh, or, or a, a PA or a nurse practitioner, uh, you have to vet that person. There's a, you have to make sure that 
this person really is qualified, that uh, they, they don't have a criminal record, all that sort of thing. So I became chairman. I was chairman of credentials. I was on other committees. Um, so that, that takes a lot of time. Those committees meet. They meet weekly or, or you know, biweekly. Uh, there's after hours conversations. And then uh, because I was part of a private practice, I, I was a I was a partner. I was an owner in that practice. So uh, not only did we have 40 or 50 physicians, but we had maybe a double or triple that of non-physician personnel, all the staff running the offices, et cetera. And so, you know, that there's just a host of administrative and legal issues that come up uh, that you have to deal with. Uh, when you have 50 doctors, that's, you know, medical billing is very complicated. For a long time, we had our own billing company uh, that I was kind of the liaison between the, the, the billing company and the parent organization. Um, as the group grew, I mean, we when we started, we were like a quarter the size of what we ended up at the end of our career, my, my career. Uh, as the group grew, we eventually had to outsource uh, either outsource some of those functions, or we brought in uh, non-medical administrators, you know, CEO, CFO, uh, to manage the whole operation. But we were, you know, I was constantly interfacing with them. I was on the board of directors uh, of the corporation, and um, you know, I was interfacing with lawyers over. Uh, all, all sorts of issues that just are part and parcel of, you know, running a corp, running a corporation, real estate law, personnel, you know, employee law, all sorts of stuff. So uh, that became, if not overwhelming, it really just took up all my time. And I was at a certain point, I was kind of getting fed up with that. Um, so um, I worked towards being able to, re you know, retire when I did. And I did. So it, I was not at that time focused that, oh, my retirement's going to be about music. So I discovered that kind of afterwards. Very cool. Um, I know as part of your um, music efforts, you focus way more on composing and, and songwriting and not so much as performing. Um, so as a layperson, I'm used to kind of seeing performers in, in, in like, bars or different venues and why, why have you kind of chosen to uh, focus more on the composing side of things as opposed to performing it's really accident uh just the way it turned out i i was i had a lot of musical training as a young person you know as a kid right up through and into college and i knew i love music um and I knew I wanted to get back to it, but I thought I would get back to it just in terms of being able to perform, not perform in public, but just to to get the rust out so I could, you know, get back a degree of technical, um, I won't say virtuosity, but at least capacity on the piano. Piano was always my main instrument. Um, and I wanted to learn some guitar. You know, I toyed around with guitar over the over the years uh, when I was a kid. Uh, but I really wanted to get kind of get better at it. So I started after, after I retired, one of the things I said, okay, I'm going to start playing piano again. So I did, but uh, I found that I just enjoyed sitting there and improvising. And as I improvised, I, you know, I was hearing melodies. I was hearing interesting chord patterns. And I started 
writing them down and um i said gee that could be a song you know so i wrote one and um then i wrote another one i said well i kind of like that i think i'll do another one so um before you know it i had written like 30 songs over a period of you know a few months and um at that point i said well Maybe I should copyright these songs. I don't know why, but I mean, if you write a song, don't, aren't you supposed to copyright it? So I spoke with my personal lawyer, who is also a corporate lawyer uh, for my group uh, that I had, you know, been known for 25 years. And he is the, he's the chairman of a big law firm, national law firm. And he, I asked, so I went in, I said, what do I do about copywriting a song? He goes, I'm a, I'm a tax and corporate lawyer. I know nothing about songs, but we have an entertainment division. I'm going to send you to see my guy uh, in, in New York. So I met with him and he, he said, well, we can get the junior guy to teach you about how to copyright. That's easy. But what re you really need is you need to talk to someone about getting some demos for your songs. <clears throat> and of course, he represented many people in the music industry. And he goes, I have this one guy who's a producer I've known for like, 30 years and uh, let me run run this by him so he reached out to me and uh i met with him and he's been like my songwriting coach uh and teacher ever since um because i really knew nothing about songwriting and he said you know you you have a kind of an ability for melody uh you have you have some talent maybe but you you need to learn about songwriting and about the structure of songs and uh, I started with him basically like a student. I call him, uh, he was like my Jedi master, you know. And um, I still, I'm still working with him. And uh, it's about three years later, I'm, I've written almost 200 now. Um, but they're, they're not all, not all of those are, you know, complete, fully realized songs. But quite a few are, or at least close to that point. And it just became just became a thing. Started, I, I loved doing it. Did it, it take a lot of time to develop the the skill of sort of integrating the actual musical composition with the lyrics? I imagine that that's got to be something that composing the music is hard enough, but then actually to add, like you said, meaningful lyrics that express something. Uh, you know, through the written language, but also through the, the song. It, it's, it's a lot of work, uh, generally. Uh, to, it may, I may be able to sketch out a lyric, you know, pretty quickly. One, and once I've done that, it's not that hard to match it to the music because they're both flexible. You can change the number of syllables in the line and you can change the number of notes in a melody and you can change the rhythm of the notes so that you match the natural rhythm of the words, the speech, you know? Uh, so I, I, that's a matter of practice. It's a cra it's craft, uh, but it, it's still, um, it, it, it just like being like writing a novel or writing a poem for, I think a lot of writers, it's a matter of editing and revision. I'm writing a song right now. I'm, pretty happy about the song at this point. I've been working on it for actually, I'd say three, three, four weeks. Uh, I'm up to version 30 of the lyric. 
And the, the, the difference between each lyric uh, version is not that great. But if you look at what version 30 is compared to version one, it's probably, you know, 80% of the words have been replaced. <laughs> Or, or maybe 50%. I, I, I don't know. But it's a and lot. And you still maintain the theme of the song? Or is it kind of that's also evolved with the versions? There are musical, slight musical adjustments that I may make as I adjust the lyrics. Um, but oftentimes, you, you know, you change the lyrics. You, keep, you can keep the same stresses and the same syllable counts. Um, what I do is I get to the song, the song to a point where I think it's pretty coherent and presentable. And I present it to either my coach in New York. I also have a songwriting coach in Nashville uh, who's a professional songwriter, a very you know successful one. And, and she's really given me a lot of insights, both about music and lyrics and um, had, had, had a lot of fun co-writing a song with her actually uh, last year. But I, I present the song to both of them uh, to get, you know, and then I get I get very astute feedback from them. And sometimes they go, yeah, I mean, I think this song, it, it works. I might do a little fix in the bridge or this word I'm stumbling over or I, I'm not sure I like this inversion of this chord, you know, the, the minor things. Or they might say, this, I don't even get what this song is. What are you trying to say here, Ethan? I don't get what this song is really about, you know. Uh, and sometimes one will get, one will like it and the other one won't. And so I, I have to, I, I process their analysis and then I decide, you know, well, what, what am I going to do? I also, I, I belong to a, a group uh, that I was invited to join in New York uh, of songwriters that meets twice a month uh, at, uh, on the Upper West Side in someone's apartment. Uh, and they're, they're all professional songwriters, mostly in the kind of cabaret and off-Broadway musical world uh, with some Broadway activity as well. Uh, and they're very, very knowledgeable about songwriting. They, they do it, some of them, for, for a, a good part of their living and for many years. So then uh, I will, I, I present a song pretty much every time I go to them and I get a lot of really good feedback. I mean, sometimes it's, it's disheartening <laughs> and sometimes it's encouraging. Um, and I, I take all those things and I, I sit back down with it and then I think what, well, what do I agree? Do I disagree? Should I try that? You know, and I play and I revise and at a certain point you go, okay, this is what I'm, you know, I think this is ready to go. So, so now, without further delay, I wanted to play some of your music. Um, two of my favorite songs that you have, uh, Something Magic and When I'm With You. Dark moon and cloudless, stars shining countless, it's just you and me. There's no one to see how you take me fly, kissing so sweetly. Soulful and deeply, I'm glowing so warm. I feel your strong arms wrapped tight round my body. Something magic happens every evening when the sun sets slowly. Our love sparks, bonfires blazing, fireworks amazing. Each night till the sun. 
So that was Something Magic by Ethan Tarasov. Can you give us just an inside scoop of how that, that song came to be? It was a melody that I re- I liked very much. Um, it had kind of a ja- kind of a jazzy feel to it. And um, the, the, my, my producer in New York, his name is Skip Brevis. Uh, he, he felt the same way about it. Uh, the singer on Something Magic is, uh, her name is Anson Jones, who um, kind of is a, 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 was a student or protege of Skip, uh, and she's a wonderful jazz singer. Um, she's a college student uh, now. When I met her, she, and she recorded that. I think she was still like be, be, between high school and college, or maybe she was just, just into her fir- first semester, uh, but just a very skilled jazz singer and i've used her for for many uh recordings including just some bare bones ones that i do so that i can present them to uh various songwriters without inflicting my voice on them um and um skip uh you know created the track uh the the accompaniment track along with um a, 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 a colleague of his named alvin moody jr um, and they, you know, they came up with that track. I, I was there when Anson recorded it, uh, the vocal skip, got it to people that, you know, got it mixed, had to be, you know, more, more engineering. And, um, that, that's what, uh, you, you heard the result. It kind of has a, like a gypsy jazz feeling almost with a violin, that sort of thing. But all those instruments are synthesized. You know, they're not, no one's really playing a violin. Yeah, we'll, we'll get back to that. I really, I just felt like the song was so bright. Like, obviously, fireworks, fire, like, sort of just this, you know, overwhelming light. And I, I feel like it's very positive, right, in the uh, the words you have about sort of this ro- romantic relationship or whatever's going on. And I... I I even associated like a waltz with that. Is that kind of, does that sound on the curve to you? Yeah, I'd have to go back and think. Um, it's not, I don't think it's in waltz time. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it has that, it, it, it has that feel of a dance. Uh, I, and um, yeah, I mean, I was just channeling kind of a, a romantic vibe, you know, but with a little, a little twinge, never regret me, right? Never forget me. Um, I was really pleased with how, how it came out. And 
Um, it, it's I I, uh, I I actually had it pitched for uh, a film that didn't get picked up, but um, the, the fact that they were even willing to listen, I was I was pleased. Um, so you can see sort of like a little indie European film somehow with that song in it. I don't, I don't know. It, ha it has sort of like a Paris cafe kind of feeling somehow. Absolutely. Yeah. How, um, you were saying you use exclusively synthetic instruments, correct? No, some of the, um, s some of the, uh, instruments that I, we, we use, and it's not me, it's, it's Skip is the producer. So he, he gets the musicians, um, and we've used guitar, sax, other vocalists. Um, but most of what you hear on those produced tracks, uh, the ones that are kind of what they would call radio ready or almost radio ready, uh, those are, you know, it's all done uh, through en engineering, you know, synthesizers, apps, and software. Does that include the, uh, the whistling as well? No, that it, no, that's Anson. That's that's her whistling, and I remember Skip. It just kind of she's a wonderful um, uh, imp, vocal imp, imp, improviser, uh, and Skip just sort of had the idea. Hey, Anson, you know why don't why don't you try whistling? You know, and she goes, Oh, I've, I've always wanted to whistle on a song. I know how to whistle. You know, she'd like been trained you know, <laughs> to do jazz whistling. So uh, yeah, that was that was real. Uh, yeah, that was definitely the, the cherry on top for the song. I felt like it was just nice at the end. Yeah, yeah. No, that was, uh, yeah, that was a very nice part of that, I thought. Okay, and now I wanted to look at a little bit different of a song when I'm with you. So here we go. to write and write Try to free myself if I could write far enough Thought I might say farewell to the emptiness I felt before you poured into my life Bleak visions in my mind You drove them out of sight Right after ride Never escaped Sleeping for the sky Cause you 
at the local swimming pool. Close my eyes, leap for the sky. When I'm with you, I feel that high. I feel that high. When I'm with you, I feel that high. When I'm with you, I'm flying. Well, uh, When I'm With You is very recent. Uh, I wrote that within the last, I guess, couple of months. Uh, Something Magic is a few years ago. Um, though, yeah, When I'm With You, uh, I, I heard it as being sort of singer-songwriter kind of mode, not, not, not more, you know, jazzy. And uh, so... Uh, I turned to a singer, uh, her name is Kirsten Maxwell, who's just wonderful. People should check out her website uh, on all the, and, you know, she's, her music's available on all the different uh, usual digital uh, platforms. Um, and Kirk, Kirsten uh, has done a lot of recordings for me as well. Um, she has that kind of crystalline voice. I, I think of her voice... Uh, like like fine champagne almost, um, and um, she's a very good guitarist. So I asked her uh, if she could, you know, uh, create a guitar uh, track for this. Just and this is just a what I call a bare bones sort of uh, production. It's it's just to present the song. Um, it's not fully mastered or anything like that. But uh, I think she did a great job with it and. Whatever virtue is in that or good is in the, that song, uh, she, she was uh, able to bring it out. And uh, that's always the case with, uh, with, with uh, Kirsten. The line, the lyric I really love from that song, which to me is like, it's just like the highlight is, you know, jumping off the high dive at the local swimming pool. I feel like that's triggers sort of like emotions and feelings for everybody because it's just a, a common sensation i guess that we all had sort of in our youth and it goes along with the idea of that go- going back to your youth is, is is kind of a theme in the song um was there a funny way uh, a funny story about how that came about or did you just kind of think of it uh at the local swimming pool i suppose <laughs> yeah well you know i think what's happened now is for kids a lot of the sw- swimming pools and things they don't have high dives because of like the liability issues but but uh, but but I guess some still do. But yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that just kind of came to me, and I, I kind of liked it because uh, you know usually when you talk about feeling high in a song, I mean you're talking about some state of intoxic you know intoxication, whether it's you know alcohol or something else. But I thought this was nice because it, it's it's the high of just being high up in the air, you know, jumping off the high dive. Uh, that you know it's it's like 
kind of a transforming experience for a kid the first time you do that because it's, yeah you know, per- perhaps you, a little you, f- fear and anxiety in there too right you, right you know there's no one your m- mommy and daddy aren't there to rescue you you know <laughs> you got to do this yourself you know and so it's like but but also it's that feeling of exhilaration that you get momentarily and that's the high uh you know and, and so i was sort of playing on that with that little post course, you know, I feel so high when I'm with you. So, um, it's just like a little different take on that. And, um, I, 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 th- I thought it might work. Very good. So where, um, where's the best place for our listeners to access your music? Probably the easiest thing is just to search my name on YouTube. Because uh, I have under my videos tab on my YouTube page, I have like 50 songs up there. Most of them are like little just basic lyric videos. No action in the video, just an image and then just the lyric. Uh, so my name, it's Ethan Tarasov, E-T-H-A-N. And then my last name, Tarasov, T, like Tom, A-R-A-S-O-V, like Victor. So if you punch that in, you'll see my page ethan tarasov slash sounding c music and that's where all my uh, a lot of my music is i also have a website soundingcmusic.com so like from it's from an edgar Allan poe uh, poem he talks about the sounding c so soundingcmusic.com and uh, there i have quite a bit of my music and it's it's arranged a little bit by genre so uh Something Magic is, I think, under the Jazz tab. Uh, and I keep that, you know, pretty up to date. But the, the most up to date accumulation is on, on YouTube because I tend to post them there and then I distribute it through Facebook to my friends. You heard it here. Go check it out. Sounding Sea Music. So we'll finish with the lightning round, a series of fast paced questions that tell us more about you. So who is your favorite musician? Boy, that's, that's a hard question. Um, I would say in, uh, of musicians in my, in my lifetime, I, I think I have the greatest admiration uh, for Jimi Hendrix. What's the biggest misconception about radiology? That, that radiology, radiology is a bunch of late, late, lazy, lazy uh, men and women that, 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 uh, that, that don't do much and get overpaid for it. How many instruments um, instruments do you play and what are they? So my main instrument's piano. I uh, have limited facility, but I enjoy playing guitar. Um, and uh, originally, uh, well, piano was my first instrument, but I was pretty proficient as a bassoon player. So the orchestral instrument. Uh, and uh, I almost went to music school for bassoon bassoon major piano minor but uh i took the easy way out and went to regular university and uh, medical school that concludes this episode of esculapius till next time i'm your host john neary be well